How's everybody doing? Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 28. We are uh, really continuing uh, looking at the resurrection today, and um, we're going to be diving into that. I think it's going to be really good. Actually, more of uh, last words. Um, Anybody have any famous last words of somebody who said something famous? Uh, Or somebody who was famous, what would their last words were? Famous last words. I was going to look that up on the internet this week, but I didn't do that. So, <laughs> uh, so that was the last words. These are the last words of Jesus. Oh, Dave, what do you got? All things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. There you go. All right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that, there you go. Um, but these are Jesus' last words. And uh, they are, um, they're written for us in the end of Matthew. Obviously, he said some things that were recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 1 as well. Um, but they're very similar. And uh, if, you know, if Jesus was going to say his last things to his disciples, what would he say? This is often called the Great Commission. And we're going to look at particularly verses 16 through 20 today. But I'm going to read the whole chapter because I just love it. And um, also, if you don't, under, if you don't really... Um, I think this is, it all goes, it all flows together. If Jesus had not raised from the dead, then the Great Commission really means nothing. Uh, I've told you many times, and I think Pastor Dell has as well, uh, the Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised from the de- dead in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, then your, your, your faith is futile. It's in vain. He actually said we are probably the most piteous of all people if this is not true. <laughs> so um, I know this morning maybe some of you have come and you're, you're, maybe you're still seeking God. Maybe you're trying to discover who he is. Some of you, uh, like me, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a while, but you need encouragement because sometimes doubts can creep in. And so I just want to start off with the resurrection and then we're going to move to the Great Commission, okay? So um, it, not all of it will be on the uh, screen today. So I hope some of you brought your Bible and you can look along. I'm going to start off uh, from... Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And there's so many parts of Scripture that you're just like, I wish I could have been there. And this is one of those. I mean, it's just like, well, because nobody really saw the resurrection exactly happen. But this is kind of an interesting picture here that Matthew writes. An angel sitting on the, on the tombstone. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he has said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
Now starting at verse 11, it'll be up on the screen. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the fact that you, um, you're a God that is not just um, subjectively true. You're objectively true. I thank you that Jesus did not just spiritually rise from the dead, but he, ob he physically rose. And I thank you be that we can know that. Lord, I thank you, Father, that you are a God that believes in us and entrusted us with the gospel to go and make disciples, Lord. This morning I ask, God, by the power of your spirit, that each person here, including myself, we would take a look at ourselves and ask ourselves, am I a disciple? And am I making disciples? What does that mean? What does that look like for each one of us? Lord, I pray that, again, you'd remind us more of who you are and your faithfulness and your love and your power and your authority. In Jesus' name, amen. I love uh, verse 17. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. It's interesting in chapter 28 here, they, uh, the women worship him, and then the disciples worship him. And so this idea that Jesus became God later on and was, it came about by the church really isn't true. Jesus received worship. We learned last week from Thomas. He received worship um, from, the, from the women. He received worship from the disciples. But I like how real Matthew is. He's like, you know what? Some of them worshiped him and some doubted. And I don't know where you are today, but um, uh, I appreciate those of you who've had, uh, who are on the skeptical side because that's where I was. That's where I often am sometimes. Uh, being a person who's grown up with um, a lot of trust issues and a lot of baggage that comes from my own family, it's not been easy for me to believe and I'll be honest with you, I, if I was in this position, I'd have a hard time seeing me worship another human being. But this is not just any human being. This is the risen Lord. This is the risen Lord. Uh, so here's what is going to happen today. I am going to challenge you, and I think Jesus is going to challenge us. He challenges us in this, the last, in the Great Commission, his last words to the disciples. He challenges us to something so radical, so beyond, so quote-unquote crazy in the world's eyes that I think if you don't know that the resurrection is true and you don't have a firm understanding of that, you will probably not do it, okay? Um, and so I'm going to start off by just kind of just giving you guys uh, five quick facts that uh, 
that demonstrate to um, a person that you can know um, that when you use them all together in a minimal facts argument, they make the best sense, the best explanation is the resurrection. And I'm going to start there because, um, because I think what he's going to share with us in, in, in the Great Commission, we will never do it unless we realize that we meet the risen Christ. Okay, so uh, Dr. Gary Habermas is a, a professor, he's an author, uh, he has interacted with this subject, his specialty is the resurrection of Christ, he's been, uh, he's studied in Germany, he's studied all around Europe, he's studied with a lot of liberal scholars and skeptics, and uh, when people make arguments for Christianity being true, sometimes they start with the umbrella down approach, and they say, well, the Bible says, and so that it, because the Bible's reliable, everything underneath it must be true. Well, when he interacts with scholars, he, um, he, he does a, 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 a minimal, minimalistic facts argument from the bottom up. He builds a brick wall. And I want to share this with you. Um, he usually uses about three to seven facts that are not disputed by anyone who has studied the history, who is into scholarship and understands what's going on. Skeptics, liberal people, Bart Ehrman, all those people agree to these facts. And so the question is, what is the best explanation of these facts? So I'm going to give them to you. Uh, they make an acronym that's kind of cool. It's called FEAT, F-E-A-T, and then I threw a P in there. So FEAT, P. I don't know. I could have did something else more creative, but FEAT is good. The first one is fatal torment, and uh, hopefully it'll be up on your screen. Jesus died by crucifixion. Almost anybody who has studied the documents, secular and, 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 and the Gospels, knows that uh, Jesus died by crucifixion. Okay, he, he, wasn't, he didn't swoon. There was a man that named Jesus that lived, that claimed to do miracles, that claimed to be uh, this, this person that was a Messiah, but he died. That's one. Number two is the empty tomb. Did you notice in what we read today? The first polemic against the resurrection was assuming that the tomb was empty. What did the Jews say? They said that they, the, 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 the disciples came in the night and they stole the body. Okay. So this is something that is accepted that the tomb is empty. Number three, Jesus, uh, the appearances. Jesus made appearances to the disciples at several different times. He also made appearances to unbelievers, Paul and James, the brother of Jesus. I don't know, I had a, a person come up to me after the first service who didn't know that the brother of Jesus was a skeptic and didn't come to Christ and become a leader of the church until he saw the risen Christ. Very similar in some ways to Thomas, but very different because he wasn't even a believer. He rejected him. So all these appearances, and these weren't just hallucinations like I think I see somebody, because hallucinations don't happen in mass. They don't happen with people you touch, the people that eat in front of you, okay? People that you, you know, put your hands in your side and people that talk to you. So you've got fatal, empty appearances, transformed lives. This is probably one of the biggest ones. All the people who saw the resurrected Christ were willing to go into all the world, make disciples. Even Doubting Thomas ended up in, in India and died as a martyr there. Almost all the disciples, by history and by tradition, have died a martyr's death because of what they saw and what they believed. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses of this. And then the last one, and this is um, fairly new, is that it was proclaimed very early. What that means is, is that, you know, because in pop culture today, the argument against Christianity is, is that the church, after several hundred years, decided what to believe. 
to control people, to manipulate people. And the church made Jesus out to be God. And the resurrection, you know, that took legends time and time and time. And legends accrued. And no, actually, historical scholars, people, liberal skeptics and believers, all agree that Jesus, uh, his death and resurrection were proclaimed very early. In fact, when the Apostle Paul quotes uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he has a creed, he quotes. Philippians 2, he does a hymn. Those have been dated like within one or two years of the death of Christ. Even non-Jews recognized in secular sources that Christianity was a resurrection religion. All right? So I just want to share this with you. So then the answer becomes, okay, these, if these five facts are true and dem dem demonstrable, okay, what best fits the explanation? And according to Dr. Habermas, you know, the, the skeptics will, both, will basically say, well, they are all true, but miracles don't happen. People don't come back from the dead, so I'm not going to believe it. Some people, a lot of people say, I don't want to believe. And then when you push them on this, they'll often say, you're asking me to believe in Middle Earth and Narnia, aren't you? You're asking me to believe in Oz, an alternate, alternate universe. You know, and what they're really talking about is the afterlife. And, uh, and, and what Dr. Habermas goes back to and what a lot of scholars are going back to today is near-death experiences. In the last 15 to 20 years, there has been 30 million people from UK, Europe, South America, Central America, United States of America, Canada, who have all come out and said that they've experienced a near-death experience. Now, Habermas says, well, even if you cut that in half, that's still 15 million people. That's a lot, but it's 30 million. And then they say, well, do you have any data, any scientific data that is empirically verifiable that these near-death experiences actually happened and that they were actually alive and their bodies was, was separated? And they do. They have over 300 now cases. Some of you are familiar with The Case for Heaven, the book by Lee Strobel and the movie. He kind of documents this. And uh, so there, you know, Dr. Habermas says, you know what, there is an Oz, and it's, you know, it's, there is an afterlife. Uh, there's a book that just came out uh, proving the afterlife, and they use the same argument. They prove four scientific facts from science and from near-death experiences, and then they say, what best explains these facts? What is the best explanation? Ultimately, it's up to you and I to decide, but Jesus claimed the disciples claimed that he had risen from the dead. So I share that all with you because some of you might be worshiping this morning and some of you might be doubting. And uh, if I wanted to push you, if I had you to push your buttons today, I'm going to push your buttons because Jesus is going to push our buttons. He's going to say, go out into all the world and make disciples. And most of us, if we've grown up in the Christian church in America, we tend to be like, okay, I believe enough of Jesus that he's good for me to go to church and when I die, to go to heaven. But don't ask me to go out and share my faith. Don't ask me and go out and invest in other people and make disciples because I'm not that convinced. And so if you're there today, that's, that may be where the disciples were. And I think Jesus' words will speak to you, okay? Um, one more thing about doubt. They, some worshiped him and some doubted. The word doubt means to be suspended between two things, kind of in between, double-minded. Um, I, like to, I like to use the word constipated. <laughs> uh, because what it does is when you doubt, it, what it literally means is you're, 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 it inhibits you from acting, from choosing. And I would say this, um, doubting can be a very healthy thing if it leads you to faith, if it leads you to question your faith. That's a healthy thing. 
Uh, scripture never says that we should be you know, checking out our brains at the door. Uh, everything that is done in Scripture is based on evidence. All of our faith is based on evidence. Christianity is not a blind faith. It's based on, on, on the evidence, and it's ultimately based on the evidence of Jesus Christ rising, uh, dying and rising from the dead. So take your doubts to the Lord. All right, let's look at verse 18a. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. First of all, I've always wondered why he says this to them, and then what does he really mean? You know, if he is God, doesn't he already have authority? Who gave it to him? A lot of questions come up. Uh, I could spend a lot of time on this. I've got about 10 pages, and we'll be here till 1 o'clock if I do. But let me just say a few things. Number one, um, who are the disciples afraid of more than anything else right now? They are afraid of the authorities. They're hiding for the fear of the Jews. They've just seen the Roman soldiers destroy their, their Messiah, completely spit and, and rip him apart to shreds, crucify him. Okay, they are already, the Jewish people are being oppressed by the Romans. So it is a power-filled political realm world um, that people are afraid of. What's keeping you from stepping out in faith and living for Jesus? Are you afraid of the authorities? Well, Jesus wants to say, first and foremost, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let me read you a couple verses on this. Jesus uh, said in Matthew 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the, ch the Son chooses to reveal to him. John 3, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Remember in John 13 when Jesus knelt down to wash his disciples' feet? Remember that story? There's a little interesting phrase right before it. Let me read it to you. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. And then Ephesians 1 says this, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The Greek word for authority is excusia, and it, which is translated as the English word authority. It literally means that which arises out of being. Uh, it's, the, it's the right to rule that arises out of the present condition, your state of being. So Jesus Christ has authority. He has the right to rule. He conquered sin and death. And he stripped Satan of his authority. I think a lot of times we, uh, we forget that um, there's a difference between power and authority. And I want you guys, in, in the King James Version, if any of you have the King James Bible, it literally interchanges these two. So it says, all power has been given unto me. So if you memorize it in that, you might, you might find it there. Okay, But I want to share with you really fast, there's a difference between power and authority. Uh, power and authority to be effectively legitimate have to work together. Power is the strength or force needed to rule. Authority is the right to rule. The policeman does not have the power to stop the oncoming traffic, but he has the authority. Okay? Authority without power is meaningless. Power ex exercised without authority is morally wrong and evil in the spiritual realm. When Satan fell from heaven, he did not lose or gain more power, but he lost his authority in heaven. And he sought to gain it in the earth. 
through Adam. He accomplished this by getting Adam and Eve to disobey God and to listen to him. And so through man's sin, Satan took authority over man. That's why if you ever read the Gospels, very often Jesus will call Satan the ruler of this world. Paul says uh, that he's the ruler, the prince of the air, the prince of the world. The whole world, John says, is under the, 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 the authority of the, of the evil one in one sense. Uh, but Luke 4, remember when Jesus was tempted? And uh, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, Satan says, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, there are some commentators that think this is a false, you know, Satan's the father of lies, so he's just kind of like lying to Jesus. And this is not like a false issue. It hasn't been given to him. But there's many who believe that it has. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not take any of Satan's power away from him. Jesus dealt with sin. By overcoming sin and by paying the price for sin's judgment, which ultimately was death, Christ removed the power of sin and death over humanity. And therefore, he stripped Satan of his authority over humanity. You say, well, who gave Satan the authority in the, in the first place? Anybody know the answer? You and I did through Adam, Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned, the world fell into a state of rebellion and sin, and Satan had taken authority. This is why when John sees Jesus in the vision recorded in Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I was dead, but now I am alive, and I hold the keys of death and hell. That's so significant. And I know some of you are, might be going in and out with me because I'm talking in the, in the spiritual realm. But we've got to remember in Scripture, what's happening in the spiritual realm directly affects the physical. Very often the physical realm, the things that we see around us are a manifestation of what's actually happening in the spiritual realm. So while Jesus did not take away Satan's power, he took away his right to use that power. That's why a lot of people say that Satan is like on a leash right now. Um, he, 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 like a dog on a leash, you know, he, only so far you can go. Jesus stripped Satan of his authority. That's why Jesus is saying here, all authority has been given to me. Now, did, did Jesus lose his authority? No, he always had it, okay? But he, uh, he, when he became incarnate, when he became a man, he limited his, his right to use a lot of it. And so he submitted himself to his parents. He submitted himself to the governing authorities. He submitted himself, and he was limiting himself in the incarnation. But when he died and rose again, that authority was given back to him. That's why it says in Philippians 2 uh, that he was raised, he was exalted, and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Um, what does this mean for you and I practically? Well, if Jesus had stripped Satan of his power, as some teach, then we no longer need to concern ourselves with him. He becomes a non-issue. And if, we have if we've been delivered from his power, then he can no longer affect us. We'd be able to ignore him completely, which is what a lot of Christians do. They just ignore Satan. But that's not what happened. If, on the other hand, Jesus dealt with Satan's authority, the right to use his power or ability, then we need to deal with him as a usurper, a rebel, a thief, that has no right to steal, kill, and destroy, but will if not stopped. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a tagline that we add on. We are praying in the authority and by through the power of Jesus Christ. 
We can stand firm. Colossians 1.13 says, We have been delivered from the authority of darkness, not the power of darkness, as King James says. We've been delivered from Satan's authority and given a higher authority in Christ's name. In Ephesians 2, it says we've been seated up in the heavenlies. You ever have somebody ask you, what's up? Hey, what's up? Remember when that, remember that was really popular? What's up? What's up? You remember that? Yeah. I used to always say, you're up. You're up in the heavenlies, seated with Christ, if, if the person's a believer. You know, I'm up. I'm up in the heavenlies. That's kind of weird. It sounds kind of cheesy. But, you know, scripturally speaking, Ephesians 2 says that we have been seated with him in the heavenlies when we put our faith in Christ. That's powerful stuff. Most of us don't know this. That's why we often act like we're just like, you know, it's like it's me against, it's just, I'm going to pray that Jesus beats the power of Satan. And I'm going to, you know, it's like, oh, Satan's, you know. Luke 10, 19, Jesus said to his disciples, behold, I give you authority. Excusia, same word, to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power, the dunamis, all the dynamite of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind shall be bound. We have keys to bind the forces of hell. Now, what do we have to do? If Jesus has all authority, what's our role? Anybody here have authority issues? <laughs> I remember the story of the kid whose uh, his parents tell him, sit down, sit down. You know, uh, 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 no, no, it was, it was stand up, stand up, get up, get up when I'm talking to you. Get up, get up, get up. And the kid kept sitting, and he kept sitting. Get up, get up. And, and finally the kid stands up and he says, I may be standing on the outside, but I'm sitting on the inside. <laughs> remember that? Yeah. That's how some of us are. If Jesus has all authority, we have to submit to that authority. And if you and I have authority issues... If we're going to define what's good and evil, if we're going to define what's, if we can't trust God and trust ourselves to him who judges justly, we're going to have a terrible Christian life. It's going to be really difficult. So this morning we're talking about spiritual growth and making disciples. And the question of the day is this. Are you a disciple? Okay. And are you making disciples? That's the key question of the day. And I have a coin. Mark Sattel gave me a coin. Does anybody here still carry coins with them? Anybody have a coin on you? Yeah. Pull out a coin if you have one. If you have a coin, yeah, object lesson. Here we go. Pull up a coin. You know, very, very often I often say this, you know, um, you guys remember Two-Face? Oh, you're dead. <laughs> okay. Um, no, but uh, Jesus Christ was full of grace and he's full of truth. Two sides. You know, God is loving, kind, forgiving, gracious, and merciful. But he's also holy and just and impartial. I like that illustration. I'm going to give you a new one today, okay? If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will make disciples. There's no such thing as a non-reproducing Christian. Jesus did not come to call us to be Christians. And this is going to be, I told you this is going to be radical. This is why if the resurrection is not true, you're going to have a really hard time with this. Jesus called people to his followers, to be disciples. And he said that disciples are people who make disciples. That is our job. We as a church are to be discipling others who disciple others. We are to grow by multiplication. The reason why the Church of Jesus Christ in America and in Europe has stopped growing and so many are closing is because we have tried multiplication by addition for years and it doesn't work. 
it never works. It never meant to work. I love Billy Graham, and I think what he did is so awesome. But that, if you rely on that method alone of Billy Graham, people coming to a, an altar and accepting Christ, and that's it, that's addition. Addition is we have a good speaker, we have great music, we have a great coffee, you know, we have comfortable, well, not comfortable seats, um, but we, ha we have all that, so we get a lot of people to come in. You know, Willow Creek said about 15, 20 years ago, it didn't work. It did not work. We did not make disciples. We could not get people into life groups to do life with each other. Okay? So Jesus here is saying his command is to go and make disciples. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, for some of you, if you think this was the intro to the sermon, you might be right, but that would be really scary to a lot of you. So I won't say that. All right? So let's, let's dive into the text. Are you guys ready? Let's look at it again. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so literally in the Greek, it's as you are going. It's not like, hey, go. But he's telling the disciples, don't stay here, go. Now, he does tell them to wait. He tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit, which is a whole other sermon, you know, because we can't do this on our own. We have to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. But he says, as you are going, therefore, because I have all authority, I'm sending you out. As you go, make disciples of all nations. The, the, the main verb in that sentence is make disciples. Of who? Everyone, all nations. This, the, the gospel is supposed to go to everyone. It's a multiracial, multi-ethnic. It's not custom fit for one culture. Um, and then how do I do it? it? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's the ministry of the church. The church is supposed to be baptizing and teaching, and it's supposed to be multiplying. I said we shouldn't, add the, we shouldn't grow the church by addition. We should grow it by multiplication. Multiplication means this. I pour into Christian. Christian pours into the next person and the next person. In the first service, we had a gentleman here by the name of Mark Sattel. Mark leads a discipleship group on Saturday mornings. Jeff, you're in that. You know, Pastor, okay, I could pick on you. Pastor Craig discipled you. And then you have been discipling with Mark. And then you've been discipling others. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. What is discipleship? Let's talk about that real fast. What does it mean to be a disciple? First of all, if you try to Google the word disciple, you'll always get discipline, discipline, discipline. Uh, it's very hard to get to word. Nobody uses that word. You know, most people say, are you a Christian? With the teens, I often say, are you a Christ follower? Actually, I don't just not with the teens, but most of the time I'll say, are you a Christ follower? I don't use the word disciple. Jesus did. Jesus and Luke did in the book of Acts. In fact, Christians are only called Christians three times in the Gospels in the book of Acts. Guess how many times they're called disciples? 281. This is important, okay? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm hitting at a, a fundamental assumption that a lot of us have. And I was, I was brought up this way too. I was brought up that there are Christians who believe and then there are the disciples who are serious about it. <laughs> you know, oh, you're a disciple, you know. Uh, actually, I always thought if I was a disciple, I'd be one of the 12. So I always said, no, I'm not a disciple because there's only 12 disciples, you know. What does the word mean? The word means literally a student or a learner, okay, one who follows, one who learns. In the first century, it was the word Talmud, and uh, it was very common. 
In fact, in the Jewish community, if you were anybody in the Jewish community, when you were in your younger years trying to be something, you know, you would find a rabbi or someone who would disciple you. And here's the deal. It wasn't like you were choosing them. They had to choose you. So you had to be a person that really wanted to learn, to show yourself to be studious. And you would follow these rabbis and you would do everything that they do. Now here's the most important thing. You would do what they do. Yes, they would teach you things to know, but it was about what you did. Let me share a quote with you from Ray Vanderlaan. A disciple did not merely want to know what his master knew, but do what his master did. Why am I camping here? Because I think we've all been trained, and I have too, and I've often done this too, to be like, oh, come to the Bible study. You'll learn more about God. That's good. Hear a good sermon. What did you learn today? Oh, I never heard that before. But it's never, what are you going to do with it? Remember James said, don't be like the guy who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like? That's like a person who reads God's word and then doesn't do it. We're to be doers of the word. So it's all to be very practical. That's why I've been pushing our life group leaders uh, for years to incorporate prayer and application into the life group. And I hope they do that. Because you could sit around in a life group or a Bible study and, and learn some great things, but then leave. And I think all of us would, wouldn't mind doing that, because I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that doesn't want that accountability. I don't want to be held accountable all the time. And that's where we don't grow. We don't really grow spiritually when we, until we put it into practice. See, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And, and hopefully when you hear the word of God, it does spark faith. But faith is also activated when you put it into practice. So I just, wanted, I just want you to, to hang on those words. A disciple did not merely want to know what his master knew, but do what his master did. That's why Jesus says, teach them to observe all the commands. That word observe is to obey. Let's have some fun. What are some of the commands of Jesus? Throw them out. Give me some commands of Jesus. Online, uh, put them in the, in the, uh, in the what, what, what did Jesus teach for us to do? Love one another. Forgive. Give others a chance. I'll forgive you. What are some commands? Go ahead. You can yell them out. Do you know any of the commands of Jesus? Oh, yes. He did, uh, he did, uh, he did say that, yeah. That was one of the Ten Commandments, and he reiterated Honor your father and mother. Forgive one another. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Feed my sheep. Thank you. There's a lot of commands. Go ahead. Come on. You guys can pick one up. Don't be afraid. What are some of the commands of Jesus? Do unto a golden rule, do unto others as they would do unto you. Pray and don't give up. Luke 18. The greatest command, yeah. One time a lawyer tried to trap Jesus and said, what is the greatest command, Jesus? Oh, am I supposed to obey all these commands? You know, no, the one, just do the one, the one, the, what's the most important command? Well, what is it? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't it interesting that the God of the universe, the one thing that he wants from us is just love, a love relationship? Augustine, I often quote this, Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Because if you love God, you're going you're to obey him, you know. These are the commands of Jesus. So what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. 
But it's not just someone who follows, you know, people follow Gandhi, people follow Mohammed, people follow, I have teenagers that follow YouTube influencers, okay? I can name a few of those. Um, but it's also people who have been united with Christ. Because look at, look, at, look at the passage. What does he say? Make disciples of all nations. How? I've always, you know, the Great Commission is so familiar. I never like to preach on it because it's so familiar. But it's so familiar that you sometimes forget there's some really important stuff on it. Why does he say baptism? Of all the things he could have said, you know, get them into a Bible study. Get them into accountability. Teach them to memorize God's word, you know. Blah, blah, blah. He says baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? Because when you become a Christian, when you choose to be a disciple, what are you doing? You're putting your faith in Jesus. And the sign of that in those days, especially, it should be today, the number one sign that you are, put, you, you've put your faith in Jesus, it was baptism. What is baptism? It's, it's uniting and identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Let me show you. Um, there's a verse, and I think we have it next, Mark 8, 34. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piggyback and come back to this, okay? Um, what, what is that the, that the person always says? Let's circle back. Let's circle back. Yeah, some people know what that means, but never mind. A little, little, trying to throw some jokes in here. I know it's a heavy, heavy day for you guys. First day of May. First day of May. Heavy day. All right. Mark 8.34. This was, by the way, this was not to the disciples. This was to the crowds. He says, and calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus calls everyone to discipleship. It's not the select few. It's not the leaders of the church. It's not the, the people called to ministry. It's everyone. And you know what he's saying here? Well, how would a first century Jew interpret that? If I want to come after you, I need to deny myself. Okay, I, I kind of probably learned that a little bit in Judaism. Take up his cross? Wait a second. People who take up their cross and carry their cross, they're dead men walking. They are like admitting that they are, they're about to be crucified. Why would anyone do that? Because they're saying that they're dying to themselves. Going back to baptism. When somebody's baptized, they go down because they've they're identifying with Jesus' death and they come back up his resurrection. So the essence of being a disciple or being a Christian is you are now uniting yourself with Christ. You are now identifying with him in his death. You are dying to self. Now, that's not really popular in our culture today. We live in the iTunes, iPad, iPhones. You know, it's all I, 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 I. All right. Uh, there's no I in the word team. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, we live in a very, not, not, not in a, it's, all about, it's all about me. Um, Paul says this, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus is not just your Savior. He's your Lord. Let me give you one more verse. I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians. It'll be up on your screen, 5. And he died for all. Why did he die for us? That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What does it mean to die to self and live for him? D.A. Carson says, to die to self means to consider it better to die than to lust. Whoa, to consider it better to die than to tell a lie, than to consider it better to die than you name the sin. 
The Christian life is the discipled life. It starts by becoming a disciple of Christ. Now, here's the deal. When I was told to become a Christian or invited to become a Christian, I was told, hey, you're going to hell or you're gonna, you, you need God because you, 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 you know, your parents left you and your parents were bad. And you need love. God is love. And God will deal with your hell. You can go to hell when you die. That was basically the two things. No one told me to die to self. No one told me to um, take up my cross. No one even told me to follow him. I, didn't, I wouldn't have even known that phraseology. Okay? Somehow we've lost that. And you know what? The Bible says God is a God of love. And he is a God of truth and peace. And he's so gracious. He's so good. And he's a God that paid it all so we don't have to go to hell. But I don't know about you, but I am not going to reorient my whole life unless I know that this, unless I know, A, my whole life is not going in the right direction and I can trust the one in whom I'm reordering my life to. That's what repentance is. All right? That's what repentance is. And Jesus called everyone to that. That's why everybody fell away. I don't know if you know that. Before, he, before, he was, before the resurrection, before the crucifixion, everyone fell away except the 12 disciples. And then they fell away when he got arrested. Oh, they betrayed him. I mean, they kept coming back. But, but all these people that claim to be his disciples, it says that they all kind of slowly began to desert him. In fact, in John 6, they're all leaving him because his teaching is too hard. And finally, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, are you going to leave too? And what does Peter say? Where am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So my first question this morning is, are you a disciple? Would you ever call yourself a disciple? And I know, again, it's really popular to be a Christian as opposed to an atheist or as a Muslim or a Buddhist. And, uh, and you might identify yourself as a Christian, but do you identify yourself as a disciple? And what, what does that look like? Um, I want to encourage you, if you're not, this is a good day to do it, to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. He is trustworthy. Now, discipling others. What does it look like to make disciples? What does it mean to make disciples? It means this, intentionally helping others to follow Jesus. Intentionally helping others. So, Jeff, as you, what you do on Saturdays, you are intentionally helping others to follow Jesus. Do any of us do that with anybody regularly? Remember I mentioned that the church doesn't grow by addition, it grows by multiplication? We have to do that and then have them do that and then do that. That's the best way to grow. Robert Colbin's Master Plan of Evangelism. I know Pastor Dell is a big fan of that. I am too. If you've never read it, it's a small little thin book. Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman. Uh, let's skip. Let me give you, I'm, I'm going to go some, through some things real fast. Principles for spiritual growth. You know, I'm the pastor of spiritual growth, so I have to do stuff like this. I love it. Okay, sorry. Number one, how do you know if you're growing? How do I help people grow? What do I need to know? Uh, people must be intentional in pursuing their spiritual growth. Here's a really good practical question to ask yourself regularly. Because I hear from life group leaders, I even sometimes hear from staff, why don't people come? Why don't they show up? Why are they not here? Why aren't they committed? The best question to ask yourself on a regular basis is, why am I doing this? No, really, why am I, why am I going to Bible study? Why am I picking up my Bible during the week? Why am I not? <laughs> why am I going to church? Why am I doing this? Have you ever gotten serious about spiritual growth? See, if you are pursuing Jesus, you're going to pursue spiritual growth. And you will show up to things like a Bible study or to like a life group or to church. Because it's, you're like, I want to grow. 
But if you're just looking for a, a jump, an inspiration, encouragement, or it's duty, or it's religion, or it's socially motivated, you won't, you'll just come when you feel like it. You know, that's just kind of how it works. So people must be intentional when they're pursuing their spiritual growth. Number two, we are born again spiritually with all we need to grow in Christ. When you become a Christian, when you put, put your faith in Jesus Christ and you choose to be his disciple, the Bible says we are born again. Your spirit is reborn on the inside out. And his power gives you everything you need to grow in Christ. Number three, we help cultivate the environment for people to grow. We could have a great life group. We could have a great church. But who's the one who causes the growth? It's God. God causes the one to grow. Number four, and I could die on this hill, uh, growth occurs best in community. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. There really isn't. If I pull a leaf off a tree, I was going to bring one in today. That, tree, that, that leaf is dead. It's dead. We're all connected to each other. You need to be with other people to grow. Some really good verses here. Uh, but basically, the whole, whole New Testament says, encourage one another daily so that your hearts don't, don't give up meeting together. Develop a person's desire for spiritual growth is key. Let me read this to you. 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's like a taste and see type of thing. The Bible says when you become a Christian, you become a disciple, you, you just long for God's word. Now, I, I know, I, I've been a believer for a long time. Yeah, we all go through seasons where we, we get dry and we feel like God is far and we don't have a hunger. But here's a question for you. What will stimulate your hunger for God's word? Because that's how we're to be. We're supposed to have this desire for spiritual growth. And then the last one is the goal of spiritual growth is Christ-like character that bears fruit. The goal of, Christ, of, of spiritual growth and discipleship. What's the whole goal of the Christian life? What's the whole purpose of this? Why am I doing this? It's to become more like Jesus from the inside out. Jesus talks about bearing fruit. What does that mean, bearing fruit? Well, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Goodness, I think I missed that one. Those are the things that everyone desires. Those are character qualities that everyone desires. How do you get them? Religion says try really hard. If you don't have it, fake it. I'm going to church today. I need to be kind. I need to be patient. Oh, he's a Christian. I better be patient with him. You know, what? No. The Christian life is... Uh, is look, at what, look at what John 15 says. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory. You say, what's the purpose of everything? To glorify the Father. How do I do that? That you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my... Yeah, how do you know you're a disciple? You bear fruit. Can a tree automatically bear fruit whenever it wants? No, it's, it's a whole growth process. It starts and it grows in the environment. That's why we're talking about spiritual growth. All right, let me give you a, a couple more things and then we'll, we're going to end this, uh, land the airplane. We're going to land the airplane. I think we're doing good. Um, there are two dimensions to spiritual growth. 
Because I know a lot of you when, you, when you think of spiritual growth, you have a box. And that box is Bible study, prayer, you know, fellowship, witnessing. That's good. Those are good things, but that's one aspect of it. You do need to, equip, you need to be equipped with skills to do Bible study. You need to learn how to pray because it's communication with God. You, we all need to learn how to witness and share our faith because we're commanded to, all of us. And we need to have fellowship with each other. So there's equipping, which is knowledge, skills, and abilities. But then there's also restoring dimension, the, the restoring aspect. That refers to regaining the image of God by developing your emotional and relational health. What do I mean by that? You and I all come to Christ with baggage. Some of us came when we were 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 years old. We have 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, 15 years of living apart from God. We've learned emotionally to deal with people in certain ways, socially to deal with people in certain ways. So part of spiritual growth is not just reading the Bible and praying, but it's learning how to also uh, take those things and apply them to all of who we are. Here's a fun little thing. Everybody take your hand. Do not stick up your middle finger, but bend your fingers, okay? Bend your fingers like this. Christian, you're not doing it. Please, would you do it? Thank you. All right, cool. Um, uh, some of you are like, still, I don't want to play this game. All right, you should be touching your, your tips of your palm. This is like the traditional kung fu, all right? Now, go back up and do it only with your middle finger. Only with your middle finger. Mine bend. Do yours too? There's always the kid in the classroom who says, no, look at me, and they're like, <laughs> All right, some of you are doing this. Stop it all the way, okay? Try it with your ring finger if the middle finger doesn't work. Mind twitch. Why do the others bend and move? They're all connected. Okay, let me give you a really helpful spiritual analogy. The scripture says we are spirit. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said we are souls with bodies. Now, I, I believe in the spirit, soul, and the body, but I'm going to equate the spirit here. This is our spirit. The Bible says that this is our spirit, but we also have a body, physical. We have a mind, we're mental. We have relationships, we're social. We have feelings, we're emotional. We have a conscience that's moral. So we are physical, mental, emotional, social, and moral creatures. But our essence is our spirit, okay? That's why the scripture says that you could be alive here, but dead here spiritually. We need to be born again. Now, if I cut the palm off, these five fingers can't do a lot. But when you get saved, when you become a Christian, when you become a disciple of Christ, you get renewed here. But the restoring of the image of God needs to happen in each of these. Some of you think religion and Jesus and God is just this, moral, 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 moral. That's how you only view God. And, that's, and we want to realize that, no, God is not like that. God cares about every aspect. He, the body is, my body is his temple. That's amazing just to think about that. That the Holy Spirit lives in, inside of us as Christians. Uh, I can't even get over that. You know, we, we renew our minds daily. Um, socially, we are, we are connected. We are family now. We're to love one another. Emotionally, God is healing our damaged emotions and the patterns that we have. And yeah, God is our moral, our moral compass and he's our savior. But I just, just a helpful analogy there that I want you guys to see. Because when you think of spiritual growth, it's both equipping and restoring. And it's the whole person. All right, last little thing we'll do and then we'll wrap it up, okay? I want to give you the way Jesus made disciples really fast. Number one, come and see. Read the Gospel of John. The, the disciples are checking him out. And he's like, come and see, come and see. They, they didn't know who he was. They were just still checking him out. And he's like, hey, come and see. Today, some of you might be at this level. This is the evangelism level. 
you might be still with God. Like, I don't really know this God that you're talking about. I don't know this Jesus. I definitely don't know this church lingo you're talking about. But I want to check it out. Come and see. And that's what I I, I think most of the students that come to our student ministry are at the come and see phase. They really are. Um, And I hope that they'll see Jesus for who he is. And when when you see Jesus for who he is, the next step is he says to you, follow me. Follow me. That was the command. Take up your cross and be my disciple. You know, to believe is to follow. Believe is not just intellectual assent. I believe Abraham Lincoln was a great president. He's awesome. I'm not going to trust him with my life. A, he's dead. B, he was human. <laughs> okay? And his moral teachings are, would not be that great anyway. So, but Jesus Christ is alive. He's God. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him as my Savior. Follow me. But what did he do to the disciples whenever he called them to follow them? I will follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus never calls people to follow him alone. He says, follow me and I have a purpose for you. I want you to serve. You will be equipped to serve. And then the fourth one is bear much fruit. Bear much fruit. In other words, as you become more like Christ, it's going to eke out of you. People are going to see Christ in you. They're going to see Christ in you and you're going to multiply. You're going to lead others. So here's my question to you today. Where are you in your own personal spiritual journey? And those of you who are spiritual leaders in this church, where are the people that you're ministering to? Are you challenging them to the next step? Are you still, are we still, are you at the come and see approach right now, personally? You know? Have you chosen to follow Jesus? That's so critical. I mean, that's what makes you a Christian. But it also makes you a disciple. There's no difference. You know, if you're, and we're all on the path. We're all on this journey. By the way, these are, these are not static. These are, these are dynamic. So there are times where, you know, you're, I'm, I need to be established in my faith regularly. I need to be equipped to serve. It's not like when you get here, you arrive, and you're like some kind of guru. No, it's all humility. It's all humility. And it's, and it's God's grace throughout all of it. But I want you guys to see this. This was Jesus' strategy, and I think it's a healthy strategy for us to think about as we go about and make disciples. In the book of Acts, the verb make disciples is used to describe both the initial act of helping someone to come to know Jesus, and, which happens in a moment, as well as the act of helping them in the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. 2 Timothy 2 says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. As we wrap up today, I want to encourage you with the end of Jesus' promise. What does he say at the end? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I think a lot of times when we pray, we say, Lord, be with us, be with us. The most overwhelming command and promise in Scripture is that he is with us. Do not fear. He is with you. Let me uh, read Hebrews Hebrews 13. I think it puts it all together for us. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, though the authorities are crashing down on us, though we live in a world that is post-Christian or pre-Christian now, 
So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. But ultimately, the ultimate leader that we keep our eyes on is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so you want us to be your disciple. You call us, Lord, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and follow you. And Lord, you've made it a way for us to do that, Lord, through, you, through the blood, through your death, and through the resurrection. Lord, I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who has never made the step of putting their faith in you and becoming your disciple, that you would move them today by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for those of us who are stuck in follow-me mode. Lord, we just keep trying to get established in our faith, but the bottom line is we're, we're stuck. And there's a lot of reasons for that, Lord. You know them. You're gracious. You're good. And you who are faithful will, 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 will pull us out of the miry clay. And so, Lord, I pray that we put our hand up and allow you to pick us up and get us out of that, that stuck phase. Lord, I pray for those of us who are trying to equip others to serve, and we are facing intense spiritual battle. Some of us, it's reaching down to our primary relationships. Lord, many of us are trying to disciple our youth and our children, and we are getting attacked on every, uh, every phase, Lord. We're trying to make disciples of our children, and it is hard. But, Lord, we trust in you. Number one, God, you have all authority, Lord. You have all power. We are reliant on you, and we claim that authority over our children's lives claim the power and the blood of Jesus over them. And Lord, you promise never to leave us, God. I pray that we would not walk in doubt, but that we would worship you. Lord, that we would worship you and that praise would be our victory. I pray for those of us who are trying to bear fruit, Lord, on our own. I pray that we would cling to the vine, that we would be people who cling to you and, and we actually love being with you and know you personally. I pray that you'd renew our time with you, God, so that you would strengthen us from within. Lord, I pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in the leadership of this church, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control would, would, be, would be the goal. The goal is you, Lord, not the fruit, but you. I pray that the fruit would be a byproduct. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, that you are faithful. Even when we are faithless, you are still faithful, and you always provide. In Jesus' name, amen.